Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time and thanks to Chris. Today, a documentary showing at Faux in Smith Street tomorrow night. It's called The Opposition, and it's about opposition in a settlement in PNG in Port Moresby to land grabbing by Australian-based companies. And with a little bit of help from the Australian government, it's called The, the Opposition. I'll be speaking with Alan Mongarama from PNG and Natalie Lowry from Aidwatch. Indigenous communities battling mining this time in Peru. And I'll be speaking once again with Thomas McDonough from the Bolivian Democracy Centre. Bishop George Browning from Canberra will be analysing Morrison's personal faith and public values. Will Bougainville vote for independence next year? That's a question that was debated at a meeting last week and Vicky Johns was one of those speakers at that meeting. And Gabby Alamin, who's the only Western Sahrawi person here in Melbourne, except for her young son, and we'll hear the journey of her life to come here to Australia nearly five years ago. But let's first hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when workers were dancing in the streets yesterday, knowing all their Christmases and birthdays and teams winning the grand final and all that is good had come at once. As the new Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil? Appointed former Fair Work True Blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it, Vice President Graham Swat Worker's son as her senior advisor. Graham, Caring Business Class Relations, Big End of Town lawyer, former lawyer for the True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association, among other important work for the caring business class. Graham's record in defending and fining for the rights of the caring business class was almost 100%. Bringing balance to a fair work no longer just looks like a bench that is so loaded toward the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers, Graham was forced to resign from the bench because he felt overwhelmed by the pro-evil union worker bias, writing a long article explaining how caring employers are crucified under caring business class relations law and its interpretation by his pro-worker colleagues. I found it's a matter of interpretation and I always manage to interpret it correctly. And we can be sure every time a union, particularly the evil, evil construction union, pays yet millions more in fines over heinous crimes like raising health and safety issues that, under the law, have nothing to do with them, every time they pay millions, they must be thankful for the pro-union bias of the bench and offer more thanks to the socialist governments of Little Kebby Rod for the Workers and Julia Gorlinghard for tearing up work choices as promised. Any doubts about the balanced role Graham will play advising Kelly were scotched when the Mines and Metals Profits Association Supremo praised him as 
an experienced and highly credentialed employment lawyer with a wealth of knowledge and expertise. The workers' excitement at the appointment was increased by a thoughtful True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review article from a caring business class relations advisor to the caring business class, Michael Angboss's win, who advised Kelly and therefore Graham the big problem was the evil union movement's continued claims that there is inequality in the workplace when all reasonable practitioners like Michael and Kelly and Graham know there is no inequality, uh, over and above Graham's expose that the system is, is loaded so heavily toward the evil unions and workers. So that's a long way of saying we can look forward to some even more finely balanced caring business class relations law as Kelly gets her act together and treats the injuries after her get all that lovely workers super money out of evil union hands and hand it to the responsible bankers and financial institutions her most gracious majesty's royal commission references blew up in her face. But that spectacular failure did show just how much she loves evil unions and workers. Bringing us to just this morning, yet another caring business class party male Minister of State assured us the party so respects women and must attract the most competent, the most brilliant, the most capable women into Parliament. And its record in the competent, brilliant, capable department is impeccable. Like Kelly and one of her caring business class relations predecessors, Michaelia Kosh, the workers, and former minister for going overseas all the time, and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers. The implication is the men, overwhelming percentage of men in Parliament, already meet the competent, brilliant, capable criteria. And again, there's no doubt, Barnacle, Constable, Duffer, Tiny, Eric, Scuttle them himself. Competent, brilliant, capable proof. Poor old Scuttlebeam, after every one of the few women they've got who resigns claiming she's been bullied out or faces losing pre-selection or loses pre-selection, assures us he wants more competent, brilliant, capable women in Parliament, but they must be the best person for the job. And the party history shows 80 or more percent of women are not the best person for the job. Well, let's be honest, the best man for the job. Like last week's choice of the man to replace former big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull after Scuttle them stamped his great leadership qualities on the party by backing the one-woman candidate whom the blokes immediately threw out and settled down to choosing between three men. Finally selecting the former ambassador to Zion, who told a caring business class party for Zion meeting recently, the caring business class party was proudly Zionist, despite a media, he asserted, is so blatantly pro-Palestinian, stateless, non-people terrorists. I want more competent, brilliant, capable women in Parliament, Scuttle them boasted at his huge success. And David is the best man to represent the seat. Ah, nothing like a strong leader. On the man who would be king, last week we had this very, very difficult quiz called Guess Who? The two clues being recent True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headlines, Never Trust a Queensland Copper, and Duffer, a low version of Travel the Poor, says China Media. And the answer was, you'd never have guessed, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Constable Peter Duffer.
which I raise because this week when former big supremo Malcolm called from London for Pete's childcare subsidies to be referred to the High Court to determine whether poor Pete may not be eligible to keep us secure, about which I thought there was no doubt, Malcolm's backstabber scuttled in Morlashson and Pete said Parliament had voted on that and therefore proved Pete was eligible. Uh, by one vote. Yes, one vote, that, that's all you need, including Pete's own vote. Yes, of course, he's eligible. So he's eligible because he voted to say he's eligible. Oh, no need to answer that, and it's not true anyway. He voted to make sure they couldn't prove he was ineligible. But Pete and Scuttlebim did make one accurate point. On that vote, as he attempted to save his job, the now righteous Malcolm also voted to make sure they couldn't prove Pete was ineligible. But not only Malcolm, but the also discarded Julie Bashup, the workers, will not guarantee she would not, she would not vote to send poor old Pete off to the High Court. Showing how the caring business class party's musical chairs worked so well and have been followed by a big game of happy families. The Did I Hear That Correctly award to the lot-like barnacle last seen standing behind Malcolm two weeks ago, knives dripping, and more so the three years of sharpening those knives in public, mostly on the Sydney shock jock station, former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, and Constable Duffer restrict themselves too, who now call for Malcolm to go away quietly and not undermine the new leader. Barnacle. Tiny, Constable Duffer. Uh, uh, that couldn't be right. Did, did I hear that correctly? Constable Duffer reminds us how safe we are with the strong protections of law and order. As yet again, our fourth estate watchdog, our guardian of decency and community cohesion, Lord Rupert of Wapping, was forced reluctantly, through his Lord Rupert of Wapping sin, to alert us sensation, sensation, P1 splash, to that great anti-decency, anti-community, anti-cohesion threat, black African youth gangs. Limiting the space Lord Rupert et al. haven't been able to devote to the white, well, mostly white, Caucasian uniformed gangs of thugs who attacked our 3CR co-presenter Annie last Friday week as she was recording Vox Pops at the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country racist Nigel LaFarge protest. Meaning, and here's the really serious bit, the Saturday version of this segment didn't get to air. Although, generous soul that I am, I'm almost prepared to forgive, almost prepared to forgive Annie for not turning up next morning, using a little bit of fractured arm and presumably shock and feeling crook as an excuse. And the good news is our socialist state government is giving those white Caucasian uniformed gangs of thugs even more paramilitary arsenals and power. So that must be the socialist thing to do, like saving capitalism from itself, as former socialist economic guru Wayne so Socialist Swansong and the aforementioned little Kebby himself have boasted all week, as they recollect, ten years ago, how they saved capitalism in the interests of the true Blue Aussie workers to whom they had devoted their socialist lives.
Another commemoration this week on terrorism, we must join our great peace-loving mentor, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, in commemorating that great tragedy 9-11, the mass slaughter and torture and displacement, and the years of mass slaughter and torture and displacement after the U.S. of coup, the overthrow of the elected Allende government and the establishment of the butcher mass-murdering pinch of shit regime in Chile on 9-11-1973. They don't need a years-long inquiry to determine if some foreign power interfered in that election. Well, non-election. Democracy demanded they not recognise the election, but recognise the non-election. Finally, we know football finals are in full swing when they resurrect the annual finals headline. Scalpers on notice. State vows to prosecute, etc., etc. Sure, sure. That'll work a treat like it's worked a treat every year we can remember. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr. Kevin Healy. And tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock till 10 o'clock, it's City Limits with Mr. Kevin Healy and friends. An informative online daily read is Pearls and Irritations, described as influential and widely read, with outstanding authors writing about important current events. The 4th of September edition included a blog by Bishop George Browning, retired Anglican Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn, and the current president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. The title, The PM, Personal Faith and Public Values. As regular listeners will be aware, I stay away from religion, but in this instance made an exception. I spoke with George at the weekend. For 15 years I was the Anglican Bishop of Canberra, and as the leader of that community there, and... Canberra being the national capital, obviously my Christian leadership and the civil political leadership of the nation coincided, so I was often meeting politicians and other leaders in Canberra. We now have the most clearly articulated Christian Prime Minister we've had for a very long period of time. Not that others haven't been Christian, but uh, ScoMo is very outspoken as a Christian leader, and therefore... What he believes needs encouragement from the rest of the Christian community, but if there is a gap between what is espoused and the actions that are taken, then there should be critique um, so that otherwise Christian views and um, the public perception of them leads to a feeling that there is a gap, even hypocrisy. And what is your critique? Number one, I do believe that um, the Prime Minister deserve support from the Christian community and encouragement, but there are aspects of his leadership in the past and indeed in the present that are slightly worrying, and I wrote a blog recently to highlight two or three, there's nothing new in it. The the most obvious, first of all, is the care of the refugees, and as uh, immigration minister and one largely responsible for making sure that the refugees stayed on Manus and and, uh, uh, Nauru, there is a gap there between what Christians believe should happen and what we have done as Australians. Um, The Bible is quite clear that we are to welcome strangers and uh, aliens in our midst. 
I think the vast majority of the Christian community is very uneasy about the suffering being imposed upon the refugees on Manus and, and Nauru. And most of us are just totally unconvinced that it is necessary in order to protect our borders. If all of these poor men, women and children were released tomorrow, uh, clearly Australian Border Force has the capacity to turn boats back in any case. And uh, there is no justification whatsoever for these people being kept incarcerated and with terrible suffering. And on the issue of climate change? On the issue of climate change, in, in his um, maiden speech to the Parliament, Scott Morrison spoke very clearly of his Christian belief and Christian values, which was fantastic. He went on to um, speak of, uh, to, to quote Desmond Tutu, um, as many people do, because of his obvious status as a Christian leader, a contemporary Christian leader. In, in the quote that he used was that Christians should stand up for the truth. And I've said in my blog that it has been clear, the truth has been clear for 30 years, at least three decades, that climate change and human activity post the Industrial Revolution are connected. And for us not to stand up for and tackle this existential threat, both in the present and more seriously in the future, is not to stand up for the truth. So I think that there is a challenge for him if he wants to have an energy or not to have an energy policy or to have an energy policy that doesn't deal with climate change. This, in my view, is in conflict with the stand he should take as a Christian. And also his stand on issues like New Start and trade unions? Yes. In, in the, again, in the quote that he used from um, Desmond Tutu, uh, it was a quote which said that Christians should have a bias towards the poor, but as the treasurer, uh, even though he was under pressure from various groups to make the New Start allowance a more livable allowance, he, as the treasurer, resisted that call. He has maintained benefits to the moderately well-off. I'm thinking here, of course, of the uh, negative gearing which was instituted at a time when of the mineral boom when we had a bit of money flushing around. But now clearly some of those things are, are not, no longer sustainable, but we do keep them, and in, and in order to keep them, we have less money available for the care of the poor and the needy. So those three areas, I think, are three that have provided a challenge for him. And these values that he espouses, they're all linked to what we now call the Pentecostal churches. For those who don't know who the Pentecostal churches are, could you explain? Pentecostal churches are independent churches which um, have a loose network together. I think they call themselves Australian churches or Australian churches together or something like that. These churches are not always, but often are very large. In New South Wales, the largest one is, is called Hillsong on the northern shores of Sydney. Um, and the church that uh, ScoMo attends in um, the Sutherland Shire, which is south of Sydney, is also quite large. They attract lots of young people and uh, so on. Some of them, and, but not necessarily all of them, but many of them express what is called a prosperity gospel. That is to say that health and prosperity are a sign of God's blessing. On the reverse side, then... Uh, ill health 
or uh, poverty is a sign of God's disfavor or even punishment perhaps and if you do hold that view I'm not saying that he does but if you do hold that view then you're less likely to be supportive of people in need because in a sense it is their own fault they need to they need to grapple with their own issues they don't deserve support from others it's up to the person themselves to pull themselves out of the position that they're in so prosperity gospel is quite strongly critiqued by uh, many in the church including myself uh, because it has a prejudicial view or it tends to have a prejudicial view towards those who are less well-off, blaming them themselves for their condition. Also, the inordinate power that these Christian churches have in influencing government policies. Well, yes, the, the political arm of the Pentecostal Church for a long time has been the Australian Christian Lobby, ACL, and um, the conservative side of politics has embraced that influence, it's particularly interested in gender and um, matters of personal sexuality. So that side of politics has in the past uh, had difficulty recognizing the equality of men and women. And uh, that side of the church, generally speaking, has had difficulty accepting women in leadership, which is so of my church, the Anglican Church in the Diocese of Sydney. But um, perhaps more obviously and seriously, it will not accept the idea of equality in marriage. And most seriously of all, it has in the past supported the idea that homosexuality is a sickness which actually can be dealt with. And uh, when ScoMo was asked recently whether he supported that view, he actually didn't answer the question. So I'm not saying he does, but he... He chose not to answer the question. Has there been a time in recent Australian history where a church or a group of churches has had what could be as much power as to influence as this group? Well, yes. In the days of the terrible split in the Labour Party when the ALP and the DLP split, that had a very, very strong religious overtone from the, from the Catholic Church. So... Yes, I wouldn't say it's unique, but nevertheless, it is substantial and it mirrors uh, the extraordinary influence of the evangelical right in the United States of America, uh, which apparently has quite a a very considerable influence upon uh, the outcome of political voting. And uh, your listeners would be aware that already uh, Trump has called upon the evangelical right to support him in these midterm elections, um, which come up, I think, in November. And that's um, retired Bishop George Browning from Canberra and Goulburn area talking about our illustrious new Prime Minister, Mr Morrison. And on the program next week, we'll be hearing George, more of George speaking about the current situation in Palestine and his fears of what's going on in Israel and the United States uh, concerning Palestine and also worries that Australia might follow suit with what the US has done in the last while with funding for the UN. It's now 22 minutes past four. Join us.
Thanks for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. Entries free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. When we think of Australian companies exploiting PNG citizens, it's usually focused on mining, whether land or sea. Disastrous consequences as well as the loss of livelihoods and sometimes lives. Today it's land grabbing involving two Australian-run companies and the Australian government with $100 million support, which we will hear about later, the development of the site as venue for the 2018 APEC conference. On Wednesday night at Friends of the Earth, 312 Smith Street in Collingwood, the investigative documentary The Opposition will be screened a film examining the battle over the eviction of 3,000 people from Pagar Hill community in Port Moresby to make way for an Australian-backed property development. I'm speaking with Alan Mogarama, youth leader from the Pagar Hill community, and Natalie Lowry, coordinator of AWATCH. First, Alan, this documentary has been controversial from the very beginning, can you explain why and who was involved in that controversy? There was a couple of uh, politicians high up in the hierarchy back uh, in PNG. They were trying to develop the sea uh, front of Pagahil community, and that's um, right in the center of uh, the capital city. So um, they had their cronies who were actually heading these um, private companies. And then it's like a 50-50 shares they had. So basically they don't want the um, documentary to be screened back home in Papua New Guinea. So that's how they started uh, blocking us and blocking the film to go into the country. Did they go to court? Yep. So the film was directed by a young Australian filmmaker, Holly Pfeiffer. She went to Papua New Guinea to do a film on Dame Carol Kiru, who was the leader of the opposition at the time. And the second day that Holly was there, uh, Dame Carol took her to Parker Hill, which was the first demolition. So in the film, you see the first demolition at gunpoint and attempt to forcibly evict the Parker community. I don't want to give away the film, but let's say Dame Carol Kiru um, didn't end up necessarily being an ally. So when Holly was uh, selected to screen the film at Hot Docs in Toronto, Canada, which is one of the biggest documentary film um, festivals in the world, um, Dame Carol Kiru took her to court in New South Wales to try and stop the film from going ahead, and she lost. But currently, Parga Hill Development Company, you know, which is the company that's really been behind a lot of this, and as Alan has sort of said, you know, there's PNG politicians, and it's all very corrupted, and 
cronyism and all this sort of stuff. Last year they put a case on Holly, the director, again. So Holly is unable to really go into Papua New Guinea. It's a bit of a risk for her. So we had to think of other ways of getting the film into P&G. What were those ways? So the film came through CDs and USBs and I started uh, doing small screenings in the settlements around Port Mosby area and in other cent- centres in Papua New Guinea as well. You know, I screened the documentary to like 20 people, 30 people per night and a lot of the people were they felt very you know connected with the documentary how people suffered through the hands of the government and the Paga Hill Development Company and they kind of uh, relate themselves to the illegal uh, demolition and evictions of the communities because there's a lot of uh, uh, similar issues around the country after every screenings they usually have a little bit of discussion and you know, they really they admitted that, yeah, we will be in the same situation in future. When did all this start for the community? What was it when the people first knew about what was planned for their land? We knew that um, they were going to develop Paga Hill community in the 90s. We already knew, we had rumours that um, uh, some corporation is going to come in and develop the forefront. We always uh, had uh, small meetings back in the community. We informed ourselves that, you know, these people are going to come in and we have to be prepared in one way or the other to, you know, be one step ahead and try to resist the eviction or demolition. How long had the community been on that land? Community have been on that land for probably four to five generations. So it's uh, like after the World War, we had a customary agreement with the landowners. And that's how our people from the Gulf area, they acquired the land. And there were a couple of others as well uh, during the uh, World War that they went down to help out, you know, do agriculture or whatever. A lot of our grandfathers were down there at the time. And then after World War, uh, they kind of uh, created a community in there. And that's how a lot of our people from other areas in uh, different like different regions, um, family members especially, they came down and that's how the community evolved. So it was a well-set-up community. You had schools for the children. You had churches. You had all the things that a community needs over those years? The community was well organised, I should say. We have a school. We have a, a, like a church in there. We have a legal system, you know, basic necessities, basic services, which the community, they, they brought in those services themselves. They organized and they brought in water, they brought in um, electricity and they created, you know, little uh, groups for fishing, like a small organization where people um, go out fishing and then they come back and um, they sell their catch and the income generate through that. 
And we had a, a small youth group, and then we had like uh, youth programs going on in there. We had a small, um, um, like a, a local rugby league team that engages all the youth. Uh, and yeah, we were uh, very much organised. Up to 3,000 people. When did you first find out that evictions were coming, that the government was going to bring in whoever to start evicting the people? So in 2012, a um, couple of months before May 12th, which is the actual demolition, we actually had a couple of policemen and the developer, Pagai Development Company, they came down and they informed us that you guys are going to be removed off this land because we will be, dem- uh, we will be um, developing this area. That's... Um, when we had that, and then our leaders got up and they uh, got a stay order. That was when um, our community was demolished. They got a stay order, and we fight through the court, but unfortunately we couldn't make it. So just to clarify, it's an illegal forced eviction, and you see in the film the process, you see the very strong resistance from the community and the different strategies they employed from the youth um, and particularly the work Alan did using yoga, acrobalance and art on the streets. You, you had the, the legal campaigns, so you had some lawyers and you had some of the elder leaders, particularly Joe Moses, who's very key in the film. You had international support, um, so doing the research around the corporations and the state. So there was all these different strategies and it really it was a very strong campaign. But at the end of the day, even though they took it to the Supreme Court and they won to be able to stay on the foreshore, on that area of land, which is very much the older generation of people who've been in Parga Hill, it was only within three weeks later that was the final demolition. So that's kind of, I guess, where we are now, is like, where is this community now? What are the things that we can continue to do to seek justice? And because... Is Curtin Brothers was part of the demolition. It's an Australian company. And Parker Hill Development Company also has Australian connections. So that's the Australian connection to the story. But also another connection to the story is that Parker Hill is a significant war memorial. And we all know that without the Papua New Guineans, many Australian men and many New Zealand men would have passed away. Parker Hill was where the hospital was. It was very much an Australian sort of war area. It was also really the front line if the Japanese had come into Port Moresby. So Pagahir was built around these bunkers and actually it was some of the elder golf men that were brought in, who were young and then brought in to actually protect those war memorials. So in the destruction of Parker Hill community, there's also been destruction of some of the bunkers, which would never happen here in Australia. So there's layers and layers within the story of, obviously, the key one is the human rights abuses, the rights to housing that local community have lost. There was no real care of where that community could go, even though they talk about world-class relocation packages. The part of the screening on Wednesday night will be to show the film, but Alan and I will also show a short five-minute film that we did last year of where the community is now. And that's the one that usually shocks people because the film finishes around 2014. So what's happened in the last four years? And so that's where some organisations here and lawyers here, we're working very closely with the community to obviously seek justice for compensation, but also work with the community that this is a cautionary tale for many other 
people living in settlements, not just in Port Moresby, but in some of the other bigger towns of PNG. Alan, where were the people forced to go to? The people were forced to go to Six Mile. Um, that's like uh, nine kilometers away from uh, where they were. And then their location is uh, Gerahu, which is approximately 10 kilometers away from Paga Hill. And what was there when the people arrived? Basically, it was desert. There wasn't any development there or any basic basic services in place prior moving all those people in just uh, grass land and um, there wasn't any shade like the trees or whatever just bare land people had to clear the land plant trees and flowers and stuff and actually build for themselves what about the children what happened with them going to school? They've been uprooted from their homes, from their community. How did they get on? The children, they couldn't even um, have access to uh, school. They're malnourished, I should say, because when they were back in Paga, they had fish, fresh fish from the sea. And then um, they had a market close by, which they could actually uh, purchase vegetables and people eat uh, nutritional food and they look healthy, healthier than they were now. What's the Australian government's connection? I guess the, the connection is, is AidWatch. And I, I work for AidWatch, which is monitoring Australian aid overseas, of which half our budget does go to Papua New Guinea. So we were concerned, because this is a public-private partnership deal, um, how was Australian aid connected to this project because right opposite Parker Hill, adjacent to Parker Hill, is APEC House. So it's very clear to us that the clearing of Parker Hill was also in the lead up to the APEC meeting, which is happening to uh, happening in November this year. Parker Hill has a ring road that no one uses now and it's very denuded Parker Hill, which was actually uh, like a national park. And there's no development on there. So there's been no real development on Parker Hill since the removal of the Parker Hill community. We've um, engaged with the Department of Foreign Affairs as to was their aid money connected. They've said no, but there's over $100 million that's been put in, aid money that's been put into APEC, the APEC meeting from Australia, which is pretty much focused around security. So it's hard for us to make a direct connection, but it's pretty clear that um, there is a connection with this big APEC meeting that's happening and the removal of the Parker community. We only have to look at most of the APEC meetings that have happened and the clearing out of homeless people or, or, or settlements um, in developing countries. So the battle goes on. The people are determined to get their justice, just rights, their human rights. Yes, the people are pretty much in their very strong, I should say. They want justice for the community. Basically, they want, you know, a little bit of compensation, which, you know, that will help. And then they could actually build a house or build their lives again, probably bring all those basic services that they use, uh, they usually had. And then uh, the other important thing is 
um, they are un- uncertain at the moment because they may be evicted again because they don't have this actual um, paperwork, or, you know, like a, a land title to uh, those areas that they are currently at. What is your role now? My role is to uh, connect the community leaders and our friends from around the world who are uh, supporting us for this um, legal uh, issue and also to tell the story back home as a cautionary tale for other communities in um, communities and settlements in Papua New Guinea so that they get prepared before anything happened to them. It could happen to quite a few people, quite a few communities. Yes, as I'm talking, there's a lot of uh, evictions, forced evictions and demolitions uh, going on uh, back home. You're in Melbourne at the moment. How far have you travelled in Australia and how far will you be travelling and who are you speaking with while you're here? Travelled all the way from Port Mosby down to Sydney via plane. I got on a car and I travelled all the way down to Melbourne. And I'm meeting a um, couple of uh, our friends, friends for Paga Hill community. And we're trying to do some fundraisings and then... That will help towards our community back home. And we could actually uh, build a small preschool, um, help with water pump that could actually pull water all the way right up to the community. And I'd imagine that the communities are very grateful to the director of the film for bringing your issue forward. Yes, the community, they are very, very happy with the director of the film, Holly Pfeiffer, because of the work that uh, she's been doing over the years and she hasn't given up. And the community as well, they haven't uh, given up on uh, the director and our friends here in Australia and other parts of the world. They are a very strong <laughs> community and they are always uh, supportive Would you like a last word? Yeah, I just invite anyone in Melbourne to come down on Wednesday evening to Friends of the Earth, uh, 312th Smith Street in Collingwood. Um, From 6pm, we'll have a screening of the film The Opposition, which tells the story of the Parker Hill community. Probably won't start the screening till about 6.30. I'll be there as a representative of AidWatch. Alan will be there, of course, to speak. And we'll also have Holly Pfeiffer, the director of the film. So we encourage people to come, see the film, have a discussion at the end. And just see that connection of, unfortunately, of Australia's role in land grabbing in Papua New Guinea, whether it's through mining or, in this case, um, through other sort of development in the more urban areas. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. You've been listening to Alan Mogarama, who's a youth worker in Port Moresby, and Natalie Lowry, who's the coordinator of AidWatch. If you can get down there tomorrow evening, that would be really great. It's the Faux Building, 312 Smith Street in Collingwood, just near Johnson Street. The film is The Opposition, and it's a a wonderful film. So that's Wednesday evening, 6 till 8, 
at Foe, 312 Smith Street in Collingwood. And it's um, 3CR and it's 4.43. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just 30 you can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. I'm speaking once again via Skype with Thomas McDonough at the Bolivian Democracy Centre in Bolivia about the impact of mining on communities in Peru, in particular the area of Puno by the Canadian Bear Creek Company. Thomas, September thus far has been a, a busy month for activists supporting the affected communities beginning with an international sign-on letter delivered to the Peru Supreme Court on the 5th of September. What was the basis of that international sign-on letter? The letter is basically in order to highlight these cases of criminalisation, of, particularly of leaders of indigenous and uh, small farmer communities, whenever they protest or resist particularly mining projects in their territories. So this is kind of a trend we're seeing in Peru in particular, but across Latin America also, of social leaders being criminalised in this way for their community organising work. The sign-on letter was part of a broader, to highlight this issue of the criminalisation of social protest and to focus on one particular case of the Aymara indigenous communities in Peru Canadian mining company uh, was trying to uh, introduce, trying to develop a, a big mining project uh, right down in the southeast corner of Peru, right, right by the border with Bolivia, and right by a major lake called Lake Titicaca. Communities there organised to resist the mine, and after pursuing all of the democratic channels available to them, like petitioning authorities, etc., and meeting with indifference and frustration. The frustration that came with that, they organised a, a general strike in 2011, which forced the hand of the government and reversing its decision to go ahead with this uh, big silver mine. So after that, the main spokesperson for the for the indigenous communities faced legal processes in the in the mobilisations, and this went on for six or seven years, and slowly uh, but surely the courts began to dismiss several of the cases, but that was after several years of like court hearings and lots of attacks in the media, smear campaigns, uh, emotional and reputational damage that that does, as well as the economic costs of travelling to and from all of these court hearings. 
most of these uh, spokespersons for the communities were absolved of any charges. But one spokesperson, Walter Adubiri, he was sentenced to seven years in prison and a $600,000 fine for his supposed involvement in, in these uh, mobilizations. So his case is coming up in the, his, his appeal. This is the regional courts in, in, in Puno, uh, where he was given this sentence and his appeal, he has appealed it to the Supreme Court in Lima, in the capital of Peru. So the sign-on letter is to, to highlight these phenomenon of the criminal social protests more broadly, and this particular case of Amara communities and this one social leader who's, who's facing prison and a very large fine. And this is an international campaign against the mining company, isn't it? It's not just the local people. It's an alliance of local communities and local human rights organisations. One local human rights and environmental organisation in particular, Duma, they're based in Puno, in the capital city of, of the region. So the region is called Puno and the capital city is also called Puno. That human rights and environmental organisation, uh, Duma, they've actually just uh, won a, a prestigious uh, international human rights award that's granted every year uh, by the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Uh, for outstanding work in defence of human rights. So Duma, for their work, defending the rights of indigenous communities in this region of Puno in the south of Peru. They've just been awarded that prize. They will receive it in, in October in Washington. It was the local, the key local organization, and then together with international organizations, ourselves, the Democracy Center, and Mining Watch Canada, and the Institute for Policy Studies uh, in Washington, D.C., kind of leading the campaign. But the, the sign-on letter itself has been endorsed by organizations, civil society organizations from around the world, from Australia to Canada, the United States, Europe, and all of Latin America, as well as local community authorities in like the indigenous organizations, like their, their representative bodies at local level in Puno uh, have also endorsed the sign-on letter. Can you describe the human rights and environmental issues that the people in Puno have faced with this mine? And other mines? So particularly with indigenous and small farmer communities, they're much more dependent on on the land uh, as a source of uh, livelihood and water as being a really basic element of of their way of life and of their livelihood. Proposed mine uh, was going to be located quite close to uh, important Rivers and and also the watershed of the of the lake that I mentioned, the Start Lake Titicaca. These farming communities, like indigenous and small farming communities, were faced with the you know the potential pollution of their water sources, and they were quite well informed. You know they had gone to see the impacts of mining projects in other communities and the kind of environmental impact that it has on. Uh, on water sources, on soil contamination, and then both of those two things on public health. So it was the risk of, you know, soil and water contamination, the threat to their livelihoods, and that that represents a threat to their their health and the health of their their communities and their families. And then in terms of human rights impacts, I think like this campaign is particularly focused on on the criminalisation of protests. So whenever people organize to resist 
to stand up against the imposition of a of a of a major extractive project in their backyard like this, and they're being and are facing legal charges as a result. It flies in the face of the idea of the free speech and uh, the right to mobilize, the right to assemble. That's what we're seeing. And one of the kind of worrying trends that we're seeing is the way that these legal cases are taking like legal charges that in the past uh, were used to prosecute for you know crimes against humanity or terrorism or organized crime you know, crimes of that magnitude are now being used to prosecute social leaders and community leaders in protests like this. So to give you an example, you know, the crime of extortion, historically, and what most people associate with the, the idea of extortion is, you know, organized crime, like criminal organizations, uh, mafias, uh, organizing in the community to force people to pay them for whatever, some protection or something that they're trying to get. So what, what's happening with, with these criminalization processes is that social protest, like so if somebody organizes a march or a strike, that can now be interpreted as an, an attempt to extort the authorities. Like so the, the municipal or regional authorities or the, or the central government to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. So that's an example. In the case of Walter Adubiri himself, he is being charged for the damages that were caused during this social protest using what's known in Peruvian law as indirect perpetrator. So basically what that means is that he manipulated other people to carry out these supposed crimes against their will. This legal theory has been used in the past in Peru, particularly in the case of the leader of a former like armed guerrilla group called uh, the Shining Path it was involved in the, a, the civil war in the 80s and 90s in, in Peru where thousands and thousands of people were killed. So the leader of that, that armed group, a guy called Abimel Guzman, he was uh, prosecuted using this legal theory. And then the former Peruvian president, Alberto Fujimori, was also prosecuted for crimes against humanity using this legal theory. And now in 2018 in Peru, social leaders and, you know, spokespersons and representatives of indigenous communities are being charged using this same legal theory for organizing social protests. Those two trends, you know, of uh, distorting and manipulating criminal charges that were originally conceived of for very different ends, you know, that's one of the things that were we're seeing in Peru and in the broader region particularly worrying and that, you know, not only direct impact in this case on the Aymara community, but also the legal precedent. So if the Supreme Court confirms the charges against Walter Adubiri, uh, it will set the, a legal precedent that these, this legal theory can be used against social leaders. It would greatly weaken, you know, the broader movement of social organizations and indigenous groups in in the country. And that's why we're working, uh, you know, with such a strong focus on this case. Are you aware of what the grounds for his appeal will be? There are two things uh, in particular. Uh, one is this idea of being indirect perpetrator. So what happened in the legal proceedings was that the, the regional court where Adubiri was originally convicted, 
the public prosecutor had originally brought these charges against the six or seven social leaders under a, a, a different legal theory. So they weren't focused on this idea of indirect perpetrator. And at the last minute, the, the judges, they changed the, the charges and, and honed in. And, uh, they allowed the other people to, to go free and they focused uniquely on this Walter Arubiri to this legal theory of, of indirect perpetrator. Whether a judge can do that. He didn't respect the, the charges that the public prosecutor was bringing. It, the judges focused on this other legal theory. So there's a whole sort of question around the legality of this, this idea of being the indirect perpetrator. That's one thing. And then the second thing is during the, the trial, uh, Walter Adabiri, he was denied his uh, indigenous identity. So indigenous communities, you know, under both Peruvian law, the Peruvian constitutions and international legal conventions to which the Peruvian government is a signatory, have rights as indigenous people. These are rights to do with self-determination, to do with the right to be consulted about uh, extractive or other development projects on their lands, and other rights around their around identity, cultural identity. But in the case, the the judges in the court in the regional court in Puno, they they ruled that Walter really was not entitled to the protections as an indigenous person. And one of the grounds that they gave for that decision was that he had a university education and that he lived in the city and used the phone and all these. That just really reflected the kind of an underlying discrimination against indigenous people, what it means to be an indigenous person and more modern conception of indigenous identity might be. And at a most basic level, like in international law, what determines whether you are indigenous people, an indigenous person and entities, what is, is how you self-identify. So that's the second kind of grounds for appeal. Is it expected that this case could go on for a little while? Is it set down for a certain number of days? I think people are expecting there to be a ruling quite soon, uh, just a few days after that there will be a, a final ruling. You know, there's a broader context in Peru taken into consideration, and this is makes this case a little bit controversial because Walter Adubiri is running in the local elections in Puno for the governorship of Puno, and in, the, in all of the polls show him ahead. So the local elections in Puno are on the... 6th of October. Uh, so it's kind of the broader context. Will he front up to court because he has been in hiding? I think so. This is like kind of the last uh, the last resort. And then, well, the human rights lawyers in Peru are also saying that because of the risk of the, like the legal precedent that this case would represent about bringing the case before the Inter-American Human Rights Commission like to uh, to appeal it to kind of international uh, human rights courts. That might be uh, a further step after the hearing on Monday. But one, of the, one of the things, this has gone on for seven years, as I said, and in over those seven years, so again, the last uh, six months to a year, Walter Adaviri has been in hiding. He, like five or six years before that, you know, it's been court day after court day, the expense of coming to the city, all of the kind of negative press coverage and all of the kind of psychological and emotional uh, impact as well as impact on the family etc and I think like whenever we talk about the criminalization of protests these legal cases are just the tip of the iceberg 
in what is structure of criminalization that has many aspects to it. So the legal cases are just one aspect, but then all of these other ways of, you know, undermining people, attacking their reputation, you know, there's this tendency to call people anti-mining, anti-development, even it sometimes goes as far as to call them environmental errors. The impact that, that that kind of those smear campaigns have on people and their families, you know, the economic impact of going to and from all of these court hearings, other aspects to this the criminalization. And another thing that's happening in Peru, uh, particularly in the south of Peru recently, is the declaration of states of emergency. So in a mining corridor in the south of Peru, it doesn't quite reach as far as the Puno region, but it does reach as far as Cusco. Some of your listeners might know of Cusco. It's quite a famous tourist destination. It's where the major Incan ruins are in Peru. Through the Cusco region and adjoining what's called a mining corridor, and in those regions, there have been states of emergency for 10 months, I think, in the last two years. And those states of emergency, you know, basically limit the rights of local people. It's quite often accompanied by the militarization of the, of the region and a crackdown, you know, quite often a, a very violent crackdown uh, on any protest or any resistance to the state of emergency. And in the context of the states of emergency, a lot of people have died uh, in, in recent years in Peru. And a lot of those people have died at the hands of police and state forces. So when we, when we talk about criminalization, you know, like the legal cases are one aspect to it. All of these other, like stigmatization or smear against social leaders is another aspect to it. These, you know, states of emergency, violent crackdowns, and these, this kind of coercion, some of the worst, most violent forms of it. A lot of the time, those states of emergency or those uh, smear campaigns, you know, they prepare the ground for other forms of violence, you know. Latin America is one of the, is, is the most dangerous region in the world to be an environmental defender, a human rights defender. And so these kind of smear campaigns attacking people's reputation in the media is often a way to, you know, delegitimize them in the public eye. And that can be part of kind of preparing the ground for, for coercion and violence further down the road. Just to push the people into submission to just stop protesting against these mines. They're going to happen, so just give up. Moralise people, and I think, I think that's one of the most unfortunate outcomes often of these criminalisation processes. We see time and time again in Latin America that multinational corporations, you know, in cahoots with the state, they have these strategies to intervene in communities. You know, they buy off certain sectors of the people, they co-opt politically, you know, other sectors of the, of the local community, uh, and then through kind of threats and coercion, slowly win over uh, other sectors. But what it results in in the long term is a fragmentation and of community, of, of local organizing and, you know, a lot of damage to community, to the social fabric that has been built up over years, over generations, quite often. And in a space of a few years, you know, multinational corporations in cahoots with the state can, can just totally destroy communities, you know, divide, co-opt, coerce, leave communities in really bad shape in pursuit of the natural resources under their feet. Well, in the situations that you've been describing, where do the international allies come in? In this specific campaign, so it's, a, it's very much an international alliance. When we've spoken in the past, Jen, about the international allies, we've spoken uh, the international alliance that was built up 
in solidarity with the anti-mining struggle in El Salvador. And because uh, the corporation involved there that was originally uh, known as Pacific Rim and then uh, later was bought by, it later became Oceana Gold, and that's partially Australian capital. So Oceana Gold was partly Australian-owned, partly Canadian-owned, and therefore the international allies with organizations, civil society organizations from Australia, from Canada, from North America, you know, they began to work uh, internationally to pressure the company, and that resulted in last year El Salvador introducing a a blanket mining ban on all metal mining in the country, which was the first country in the world to do so. So that, that particular alliance, the international allies that worked in solidarity with the people in El Salvador and the organizations there, you know, the Institute for Policy Studies, Mining, What's Canada, ourselves, the Democracy Center, are all, you know, involved in one way or another in that, in that alliance. And organizations in Australia have signed the petition, the sign-on letter that we spoke about earlier. The international allies are very much part of this campaign, just in, in a different way, in a, in a less kind of formalized way as compared to the way the, the work around El Salvador was organized. And also Guatemala facing ISDS cases. Yeah. So, in the case of El Salvador and in the case of Guatemala and in the case of Peru, whenever communities stand up and say no to these extractive projects in their territories, quite often what the multinational corporations involved will do is to resort to these uh, investor state arbitration cases. So these are legal cases that corporations can bring against governments when governments change policy in a way that affects their interests. So in the case of El Salvador, when the people there are kind of organized to say no to mining, the company involved Pacific Rim that later became Oceana Gold brought a a multi-million dollar investor state case against the government of El Salvador. Uh, Guatemala, as you mentioned, is facing several of these cases. In the the case of the Aymara communities in southern Peru, and the the company involved here is called is a uh, Bear Creek Mining. It's a Canadian company, and whenever the protests took place, resulted in the government, you know, changing course and and deciding to uh, revoke the permissions for the the, the mining concessions from from Bear Creek. They brought a, one of these uh, investor state cases against the Peruvian government. And although they were hundreds of millions, these tribunals at, at the World Bank, they didn't give Bear Creek the amount that they were looking for, but they did rule in favor of the, of the company. And that has resulted in, in the Peruvian government having to pay over $30 million, including interest and legal fees, on this case. So it's just another, another weapon in the artillery, if you like, of of multinational corporations, the system of arbitration tribunals. These are kind of codified or in free trade agreements. So these uh, free trade agreements that are presented to us as being to attract investment and absolutely necessary and that do no harm at all. Once they're signed, they enshrine a whole series of protections for multinational corporations. And whenever uh, a government changes a policy, like in the case of these mining, these mining policies give multinational corporations the, the possibility to bring these colossal investor state cases against governments. 
Finally, Thomas, from what you've been saying about the cases, it seems that Canadian mining companies are very active in Latin America. Is that correct? Yeah. In a lot of these cases, like I mentioned, El Salvador, and that really emblematic case of Pacific Rim and what became Oceanic Gold, and in this case of the Aymara communities and Bear Creek mining, they're both Canadian. That reflects uh, the Canadian uh, mining industry having a disproportionate presence in the region and a whole kind of suit of, you know, diplomatic representation and whatnot and influence over governments in the region and uh, shaping policy and, yeah, working with organisations is, is a really important part of these international alliances for that reason. Okay, well, thank you so much and I wish you luck. Sure, thanks a lot, Jan. Thanks for having us on again. Okay. And that was Thomas O'Donnell from the Bolivian Democracy Centre. And hopefully by the, in the program next week we'll have the results of the appeal by Walter against his seven-year jail sentence and a $300,000 fine. On the 5th of September, the 17 group meeting in Brisbane was addressed by a panel of three all of whom know the situation on Bougainville very well. The topic for the evening was, will Bougainville vote for independence next year at a referendum, with or without the Panguna mine, and Bougainville past, present and future. I'm speaking with one of the three panellists, Vicky Johns, about the evening. And Vicky, can you first introduce the three panellists, their backgrounds and their interest in and expertise on the topic of Bougainville? Okay. The three panellists were Jim Beetson, Graham Double and myself, Vicky John. And a little bit about their backgrounds. Jim Beetson is a semi-retired journalist who had been to Bougainville back in 1988, I think it was. Jim is still very active with the Bougainville issue. Yeah, he's from the northern rivers of New South Wales, semi-retired, but still works as a radio and print journalist and grant writer. Graham Double, I'd never met Graham before. Graham has an interest in arts and cultural, cross-cultural interaction. He went to Bougainville last year as a mentor and an events organiser for the Chocolate Festival and was a volunteer with the Australian Volunteers International Peoples and worked for the Bougainville Department of Primary Industries. Oh, me, a long-time activist for peace and human rights for the Bougainville Freedom Movement. I've been an activist for Bougainville for 25 years and have assisted Bougainville and the people of Bougainville on a political front and other practical matters. Well, as I said before, the, the topic of the evening was will Bougainville vote for independence next year at a referendum with or without the Panguna mine and Bougainville past, present and future. What did Jim have to say? Jim went through the history of the island of Bougainville from the late 19th century up until the current uh, of today. Uh, it was a very interesting talk. He covered the unfairness of, the, of how Bougainville has been treated by you know, their colonial past with Germany, 
with Britain, with uh, Australia, and now currently Papua New Guinea. So the history, um, he went into it deeply and it was truly a wonderful talk and maybe you should really interview Jim on that one. Yes, he certainly um, has a lot of knowledge in that department. And Graham? Graham spoke about um, his time in Bougainville and how he recently worked there through the Australian Volunteers International as a festival consultant to Bougainville, to the Bougainville government, particularly the Department of Primary Industry. Apparently, Graham has worked in other international set- settings, but the challenges in Bougainville came from um, a totally unexpected area, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT who insisted that he be returned to Australia immediately without giving any substantial reason. What was your contribution, Vicky? I spoke about the current events of Bougainville in regards to next year's referendum with the target date of the 15th of June 2019, the involvement of Papua New Guinea and Australia and its attitude to the referendum next year, and the controversial nature of reopening the Panguna copper mine. Well, there's three issues there. There's one, will Bougainville vote for independence at the referendum next year? How certain are we that there will be a referendum next year? A target date of the 15th of June 2019 has been set for the referendum on Bougainville's political future. The target date was agreed by the PNG Prime Minister Peter O'Neill and the Bougainville President, John Momus, at the Joint Supervisory Body meeting on the 26th of May 2016. Under the terms of the Bougainville Peace Agreement, the referendum must be carried out in Bougainville before mid-2020. It must not be forgotten that the Peace Agreement of 2001 was entered into in order to end the brutal, violent, divisive, bloody war on Bougainville from 1988 to 1997. That was nearly 10 years that killed an estimated 20,000 people on Bougainville. The peace agreement was witnessed by representatives of the United Nations, Australia, New Zealand, Solomon Islands, Fiji and Vanuatu. In June this year, at the Joint Supervisory Body meeting in Arawa, Bougainville, the President of Bougainville, John Momus, stated how frustrated he and his government were with the lack of support from the PNG government to prepare for the Bougainville referendum. President Mama said, I understand your government has other pressing priorities with APEC, the, A- the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting, and the complex current situation in the highlands. Momus also said, I understand too that your budgetary constraints are grave, but we must also remember that the peace agreement ended a terrible conflict. The time for action on the referendum is now. We simply do not have the money to do anything. We're not even receiving the amount of recurrent grants needed to meet salary costs and not enough for our public service to do much at all. So that was the 29th of June. Then the next joint supervisory board meeting was to take place at the end of July, but that was deferred till the 24th of August this year. The meeting planned for the 24th of August did not happen. The main focus of the meeting was the Bougainville referendum. It has been delayed because the questions that will be put before the referendum have yet to be decided upon, advised the PNG Prime Minister Peter O'Neill. 
The people of Bougainville are becoming frustrated with the PNG Prime Minister. Bougainville suggests that a single question be asked, such as, do you want Bougainville to become independent, with a simple yes or no answer. It seems that the PNG government want more than one question to be asked, such as, do you want to remain with Papua New Guinea, or do you want to remain with Papua New Guinea but with a higher degree of autonomy? Other issues that are outstanding between Bougainville and Papua New Guinea have been identified and include the engagement of an international security force during the referendum process, further funding for the Bougainville Referendum Commission and funding for a jointly approved weapons disposal plan. That still hasn't happened, the weapons disposal. Well, it actually has happened under the United Nations, but there are some people who haven't surrendered their weapons, but those people are the Mekamui people who have stayed right out of the peace process. So they're still holding on to their weapons, and the Mekamui people are around the site of the Panguna, well, the defunct Panguna mine. So I think that the yeah, weapons disposal is mainly focusing on the Mekamui people. And why are they holding out? They don't trust Papua New Guinea. They don't trust Australia. They certainly don't trust the mining company. Bougainville Copper Limited. And how many people are we talking about and what area? Um, it's the Panguna mine area and I'm sorry I don't know how many people have weapons. I have no idea on that. They were the people in that area that suffered greatly during that war? Absolutely. The mining company caused massive death, grief, environmental damage and I can truly understand why those people haven't surrendered their weapons. As I said, they don't trust Australia, they don't trust Papua New Guinea, and they certainly don't trust the mining company. What else was said about Australia at the moment? I received um, a wonderful press release on the 20th of August this year, 20th of August 2018, from a Bougainville MP. I'd like to read that out. The press statement, or the press release, the topic is Bougainville MP tells Australia, stop the political interference and do something useful. The Bougainville member for Silao and former Vice President of the Bougainville Autonomous Government, Joseph Watawi, has criticised Australia for political interference in Bougainville's domestic affairs in the lead-up to the 2019 independence referendum. Mr Watawi also suggests that Australia would have achieved more influence and respect in Bougainville if they'd replaced their foreign and aid corps with a drunk rugby team. <laughs> Mr Watawi said, Without consultation, the Australian government have set advisers in all of our political offices while making only tokenistic efforts to actually help the people here. He said, let us not be naive. Australian aid is not about helping people, but about gaining political power and influence. The problem is that in Melanesian culture, the only way for outsiders like Australians to gain political power and influence is to actually start at the grassroots and help people and communities. The top-down approach of the Australians of attempting to hijack our political system merely confirms the suspicions of many Bougainville people that the Australian program is one of spying and jockeying for a position over our natural resources in the lead up to the next year's 
independence referendum. The real task facing the Australian government and their representatives here is to deal with Australia's legacy issues. It was the Australian-owned mine at Panguna that started the war on Bougainville that led to the deaths of at least 10,000 Bougainvillians and it was Australia's helicopters and pilots who contributed to the death toll, shooting people from the air and burning villages. Australia also contributed to the naval blockade of southern Bougainville, stopping essential food and medical supplies from reaching civilians in the conflict area. In the past 10 years, we Bougainvillians have put a lot of work into the reconciliation process amongst our various factions and language groups. Australia, as one of the key causes of the war, has been noticeably absent from this process. If you go to the Panguna pit, the mine site, today, and ask the women who are the traditional landowners, they will tell you that in the life of the wealthiest mine, the Panguna mine, on the planet at the time, they did not get enough to buy food from the mine supermarket. Mr Watawi said... If Australia is genuine about rebuilding its relationships with us, they need to send us useful people like nurses, doctors, teachers, engineers, etc., not bureaucrats. And he repeats, Australia would have one more power and influence here if they'd sent us a drunk rugby team rather than their current batch of bureaucrats. Compare this to New Zealand, who have slowly and carefully, with great cultural awareness, built the Bougainville Police Force and law and justice sector since the signing of the peace agreement in 2001. The result of which is that New Zealand is our, a trusted and respected international partner and member of our community. Signed, the Honourable Joseph Watawi, MP and Chairman of the Parliamentary Select Committee responsible for referendum preparation, weapons disposal, peace and unification. What was the discussion amongst the or by the panellists about the possibility of the Panguna mine starting up and who might be in there trying to start it up? Well, Bougainville Copper Limited is an independently managed company of Papua New Guinea that is publicly listed on the ASX, the Australian Securities Exchange. My question has always been, why is, why is it that Bougainville Copper Limited is still listed on the ASX when Bougainville Copper Limited ceased its mining operations at the Panguna Mine in 1989. Now, that's nearly 30 years ago. The major shareholder in Bougainville Copper Limited was Rio Tinto, who owned 53.8% of the shares. Rio Tinto made the decision to cut its losses and walk away from Bougainville in June 2016. In a decision slammed as remarkably unprincipled, shameful and evil... The mining giant has also sidestepped demands for a billion-dollar clean-up. Rio Tinto, the dual London-Melbourne-listed mining giant, has refused to pay up or clean up, insisting it has no responsibility for environmental or other consequences from the Panguna mine. Rio Tinto believes it was fully compliant with all the regulatory requirements and applicable standards at the time. Only a trickle of cash ever made it to Bougainville when the Panguna mine was operating, while millions of tonnes of acid-laced mining tailings killed the Jabba and Karawong rivers, 
which were once a source of water and food for thousands of vulnerable people. Rio Tinto insists that the way to address environmental concerns is to get the Panguna mine running again with local safety and stability assured and investor-friendly laws. President Momis of Bougainville said Rio Tinto must take responsibility for the mess it left behind on Bougainville and has challenged the company over its claims of corporate social responsibility. Rio Tinto bobbed off or gifted its shares to the autonomous Bougainville government, which now holds 36.4% in Bougainville Copper Limited, equal to the independent state of Papua New Guinea. Research was done back in 2015 by a Dr. Mark Muller of the Nostroma Research Centre. He summarised the following. Bougainville Copper Limited estimates the cost of reopening the Panguna mine will exceed 5 billion US dollars. This doesn't account for expenses of concluding several essential due diligence studies. A new mine is at least five, possibly ten years away from profitable production. Judging by the amounts of grades of copper and gold in the Panguna mine, mine lease area, any company reopening the mine will struggle to compete against global competitors and is likely to fail. It is highly improbable that any other mining company would be seriously interested in reopening the Panguna mine and major global, global banks are most unlikely to supply the funding needed for this purpose. Back in um, June 2017, a roadblock prevented President Momus, his delegation and landowners from signing a memorandum of agreement supporting the redevelopment led by Bougainville Copper Limited. The message from the people was simple. No mining, no BCL. The current shares for Bougainville Copper Limited are 17 cents. Bougainville Copper Limited is still trying to promote themselves as the most credible developer of the Panguna mine. In January 2018, the Bougainville Copper Limited licence was rejected by the government of Bougainville because of landowner division. The Bougainville government imposed a moratorium on any company restarting mining at the Panguna site. What the mining company is pushing... They're still pushing. They don't like it that they can't, that the Bougainville government and the people don't want them, but they're still persisting that they're the, you know, the company that should go back. So now Bougainville Copper Limited has a court proceedings happening in the um, PNG National Court seeking a judicial review as to why, you know, they haven't been granted what they want. Also, in a separate court proceeding, they have commenced proceedings in the Supreme Court of Victoria, Australia, seeking the discovery of documents from another mining company, RTG, who also would like to go and mine at Panguna. So they're, you know, they're, they're taking the matter to court. They are so pushy. And who knows what the courts will say about their applications. It must be imagined, though, how long it would take if this mine was open next year or the year after for a profit to be made. The, the mine is destroyed. The infrastructure is destroyed. It's all overgrown again. Yes, it's been closed for 30 years, 1988 up until today. It's still closed. So, 
Yes, it's, 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 it'll take, you know, it's been estimated five to ten years before any profits can be made. And, um, you know, this, the clean-up of the environmental damage is also going to cost five billion US dollars. And where is the compensation for what the people suffered? Exactly. That's not even thought about. It's all about the mining company. It's never about the people. The people are, it's obvious, the people don't want the mine. They know what the mining company did. It's just shocking. That, like they, it's, The mining company doesn't seem to have any remorse whatsoever. I mean, 20,000 people, it's been estimated, are dead on Bougainville because of that copper mine, because of that mining company. It's absolutely shocking, Jan. And you don't need a mine. There are alternatives for the economy of Bougainville, an independent Bougainville. Absolutely. There's agriculture, there's fisheries, there's tourism, hopefully hopefully ecotourism. And if there was ever to be mining again, it should be on a small scale. None, none of this, you know, horrendous, you know, envir- environmental, you know, devastation that they did at Panguna. Just back to that meeting on the 5th of September, what sort of crowd did you have there? Oh, it was a wonderful crowd. Lots of questions were asked at the end of the, you know, after all the, the three of us spoke. It was really uplifting and it's, yeah, and it was just fantastic to have so many people there, so well organised by a retired academic from Queensland University. His name was Dan O'Neill. It was truly, yes, it was a wonderful evening. And what were the main things that people were interested in? One character said it should have been filmed or taped, the forum. Another, other people were asking about, you know, how they can help with regards to, you know, pushing agriculture. Oh, there was lots of questions I can't think of right now, but it was really, it was really quite stimulating. That's great. All right, is that it for you? I received a, an email from a dear friend in Bougainville on Monday the 3rd of September this year and she said, Vicky, please make it loud and clear to the Australian government and community that the majority of people of Bougainville can't wait to wait for independence. Independence is ours. We don't want seven options of political status as proposed in June 2016 on a fact sheet from Booker, from the Booker Referendum Office, nor do we want five options proposed in March 2018 on the fact sheet. More than 20,000 people died. They didn't die for those options, but independence. We also simply want and are demanding two options only, yes to independence or no to independence. This will show a clear majority. The five and or seven options will not show a clear majority. Some of the options put forward are limited autonomy, highest autonomy, independence if PNG agrees to it, independence but after a period of time, and the time's not specified, or free association arrangement like New Zealand, the Cook Islands. We want none of them. We only want independence. That's clear enough? Yep. It certainly is. And that's Vicky John, pro-Bougainville independence activist from Queensland. And it's just on 5.30.
This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. The journey from Western Sahara to Australia is a long one, but not necessarily a direct one, as we will hear from Gabby Alamin, the only Western Sahrawi living in Melbourne, who arrived here nearly five years ago. Gabby, the refugee camps in Algeria where your family and friends now live were established by Western Saharans fleeing Moroccan forces in 1975-76, long before you were born. What were you told about the situation that led your family to go to the very basic camps in the desert? My parents and my grandparents were born in Western Sahara, at that time occupied by Spain. In 1975, when Morocco invaded Western Sahara after Spain left, my grandparents and my parents at that time were children. They were forced to flee to Algeria. My mother, I remember, she used to tell me stories about how they fled the country and how she lost her brother. He died in the war. Yeah, so basically they had to flee on their feet, crossing the desert from Smara, one of the largest cities in Western Sahara, to Tindouf. And uh, that's my mother's story. My father, he was picked up by the police. At that time he was a child, and then he came to the refugee camps. How far is that trip from Western Sahara to the camp? They walked all the way. Yes, days, days. My mother and my grandparents, they used to um, walk during the day, and at night they would sleep you know, in mountains and some something like that. They were like a group of people. Yeah. What were they able to take with them? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Yep, they came with nothing. My, my grandparents, my grandfather specifically, he was wealthy, you know, in our standards. So he had lots of camels, a lot of sheep. He had to flee and he just left everything, even if with no blankets. My grandmother... She At that time, she had um, six children, and they were, like, very close to each other, like one year and one year and a half. So she had to carry all of them, and with the help with, from other ladies. Yeah, so they didn't have milk, they didn't have blankets, absolutely nothing. It must have been cold at night. Yeah, very cold, yeah, yeah, it was very cold. And um, also the Moroccans, Moroccan army was bombing them from the skies so they would actually they saw people dying they saw blood my mother still has that memory as child seeing you know her brother killed and other people seeing like them the shreds of the bombs how old was she how old was she so my, my mother was born in 1969 yeah so she, she was quite young she fled the western sahara in 75 what did they know they were going to where were they going that they knew? They were fleeing, but where were they fleeing to? Yeah, at that time, they really there wasn't a clear idea because there wasn't a lot of opportunity for communication between the Polisai Front and the Sahrawis. And also because a lot of Sahrawis, they lived as nomads, so it was very hard to get the message to them, you know. But they only had two choices, either to stay there and die or to go 
just go you know, with the flow, just run to the desert. And uh, yeah, so at that time, I remember my grandmother used to tell me that um, they thought they were just hiding from Moroccans and then they would, they would go back and uh, they never came back till now. It sounds like the Palestinians, doesn't it, when they were forced out of Palestine by the Israelis? Yes, yes, it's, it's a very similar story, yeah, a very similar story. Not all your family left, some stayed behind, they weren't able to take that journey? Yes, yes. From my father, so my father came by himself. He left his mother and his sister, and he he never saw them. They passed away before he could go back and see them. And he basically had to live on his own. He had to survive by himself. At that time, he was quite young also. And, um, yeah, so he just, uh, he got the message from the Polisario, so he was able to be picked up by the Polisario front, the members. And uh, so he didn't have to walk. So the Polisario Front had gone ahead and arranged with the Algerian government to set up the camps. Is that what you're saying? That they knew the people were coming so that there was somewhere for them when they arrived? Yes. I think at that time the Polisario Front was led by Al-Wali Mustafa Said, the founder of, uh, of the Sahrawi Nation and the Polisario Front. And I think because if you look at the map, Western Sahara is, it has borders with, borders with Morocco. Mauritania from the south, they also Mauritania attacked us. And we have the Atlantic and we have Algeria. So Algeria was the only place where we could be safe. I think they did arrange that. And we are really thankful to Algeria for hosting us and for giving us the, you know, the chance to survive as a nation. What did your grandmother tell you about what it was like in those early years in the camps? Yes, it's very emotional because my grandmother passed away just three weeks ago. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to see her. Uh, she told me, so after they came from Western Sahara, they came with nothing. Uh, they set up some tents, so like a big tent, and then a lot of families would live in that, share that tent. The men, they all went to the war. They all they had to go to the army, join the army. So it was the ladies' job to you know, take care of the children and manage the camps, set up the camps. And there were lots of children? Yes, lots of children, yes, lots of children. Because the Harawi's families typically are large families. For example, in my case, my grandmother had 10 children. Yeah, some, some people had 13, some people less. So, yeah, we, we have large families. Were you told how long it took to set up the schools and the clinics and all those sorts of things because you're out in the middle of the desert there's nothing for miles and miles and miles is there yes so i think at that time actually in the in this late 70s sahara was were convinced that they will go back to western sahara so there wasn't any like the aim wasn't to build the camps to be country but to go back to western sahara but unfortunately that didn't happen and uh, they signed the peace agreement, no, it's like the ceasefire in 1990, 1991. From that point, it's that point when the Sahrawis knew that, you know, it's going to take a while for us to go back, and they start setting up schools. At this time, a lot of Sahrawis, they were sent to study abroad, either to Algeria, Libya, Cuba, to the Soviet Union, and some, um, some Eastern European countries. Yeah, so... Um, the development of schools came later after the Sahrawis knew that we are staying here, we have to do something. 
and you were born into that time. You were three years old then. Yeah. What are your earliest memories? Yes, yes. I was born in 1988. My early memories, I was in a tent, very, very basic, very basic. We had kitchen. We just tent and the kitchen, I remember. We used to go to kindergarten. We used to walk to kindergarten back and forth. We didn't have electricity, no running water. For us to take shower, we would take shower only once a week because of lack of water. And our food was very basic, usually just bread, uh, some beans. And the clothes, also I remember my mom used to make the clothes for us. How like many children? Uh, we, are now, we are six children. So that time it was me and my, and my sister. I remember when I used to go to the kindergarten, I, I only had one jumpsuit that I would wear every single day and come back and then put it away and wear the clothes that my mom made. It's just simply desert. Be hot, very hot and cold. Very hot. Oh, I remember it was very hot. Windy. In summer, it's really hot. And in winter, it's cold. Chili, like chili, you have to put a jacket on. And I remember it gets hot to the extent that we children would run holding water cans, taking shower. At that time, we also didn't have showers. We didn't even have, we didn't have, didn't have toilet at that time. So everything you do, you just go to the, the sand and do what, do what you need to do and you come back. Yes. And I remember we didn't have toys at all. We didn't have toys, so we mostly played with uh, with each other, with our hands. Did you get to the stage where you asked your mother, why are we living like this, or was it just normal? Yeah, the first time I questioned, you know, the situation of my people is when I went to Spain. The Sahrawi children, they usually spend summer with the Spanish host families, because uh, it's really hot, and also to get some medical treatment if they need it. So that was the first time in my life that I questioned, you know, the, my reality. So I, I went to Spain, How to Barcelona. How old? I was in the third grade. I was nine years old. That must have been a culture shock. Yes. I went to Spain, and uh, the first thing, uh, when, my fam- when my host family took me to the beach, to the sea, I said, now I know. I know why we don't have any water in, the, in, in my country. She said, well, I said, because you, you took all our water. So basically I thought that they took the water, they didn't have any water. It was a big, big shock and it made me think, I mean, why the children are living this life? Why am I living in the, in the camp? Before that I thought that just, that just, you know, that's the only reality I knew. I didn't know that there are other realities that exist, that there are other children who are living different lives. Yeah, so that was the eye opening for me, the eye opening moment. It's just a big city, though. It is, yeah. It's a big city. It's beautiful. There is water, different food. So for us, even running water is like something basic that we didn't have. Toilet, we didn't have toilet. Electricity, didn't have. I remember when when I was young, I used to do my homework using the candle light. That was the moment I asked my mom. I, I said, you know, why don't we go? She's like, well, you know, we have a country. And we have houses, but we just can't go back because if we go back, we might get killed. Yes. So from that time, I, you know, I start to think, I start to ask questions. And did you go somewhere every summer 
did you, all the children leave the camps during the summer or just some children? Only when you are, at that time when you are in the third grade of elementary school. So when you are like around eight, nine, ten years old, the other children don't go because they are younger. So you would go spend uh, the summer holiday and come back. And when you come back, you come, you bring the toys, the clothes, medication. Yeah, it's, it was a good experience. Did you only go to Spain or did you go to other countries as well? Yeah. No, I, did, I went to Spain for three summers and I went to France as well. Whereabouts so, in France? Oh, I went to Paris and then I went to Marseille in the south. So you had a really big experience as a, as a young child, probably more experience than we here in Australia would ever have as children. Yes, definitely, yes. Yeah, I got a chance to, to go to other countries. And the reason that happened, usually the Sahrawis get only three holidays, two or three holidays. But um, when you are doing really good at school and when you are on top, they give you that chance. So that's, that was my case. I went to the group to, with a group of children. We were all the top of our classes. So we went to France instead of Spain. It was a different experience also. In what way? So we got to learn a little bit of French. Uh, we went to Marseille, which is the south of, of France, which is very similar to our country, very hot. So, and we lived together as a group. We didn't go to host families. We spent more time with each other. Whereas when we go to Spain, you are usually with a Spanish host family the whole summer. You are listening to an interview with Gabby Alamin, the only Western Sahrawi living in Melbourne. Did you find what we might call racism as a child? You wouldn't understand what that word meant, would you? Mm, I don't remember. I don't remember facing any racism there. I remember my Spanish families were really... Very, very nice, and I was very delighted to be with them and to go back. I never faced any racism at all. Where was your father during all those years? Yes, my father works for the Polisario. He works at the camps. Uh, He works in something called Rabuni, which is basically the political capital of the camps. Go to work in the morning and come back at night. We didn't really see much of my father. And did your... You realise, or people realise that they weren't going back until the situation improved. Did the housing improve? Did the education improve? Did you manage to get some sort of toilets and proper showers? Did that that happen as you were growing up? Yes, yes. Because they waited. When you wait for a long time, you just, you know, and there is actually no solution like that that you see in the horizon. And, um, yeah, so people start to settle down properly. We still kept our tents, but we started building houses. Sometimes some families use the brick, depending on the budget that you have. Something, some people would just use um, mud. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so we have, yeah, we built toilets, we built showers. Where was the water coming from? Because if you're building bricks, mud bricks or sand, you've got to have water. Yeah, so um, since a long time ago, we just dig a well and then you take the water, and unfortunately, that water wasn't clean. So there is this, in my generation and the generation of my older siblings, we drank that water. It was contaminated, a lot of people got sick, and especially with the teeth, it's bad for the teeth. Recently, they stopped using the, that kind of water, and they start getting proper water. 
Did you see a time when you would leave the camp and go and live somewhere else? Or did you believe that you were going to stay there with your family, with your mother, with your father? Or did you have plans that I have to see the, get out of this place and do something with my life rather than stay in a camp? Yeah. When I started secondary school, at that time we didn't have any secondary school at the camp, so all the children had to go to Algerian cities in the north. We would take the bus for one day, whole day, to get to our school. And then we would stay there for the whole year. And then when it's summer, we would co- uh, come back. And that's one of the things that made me think that, um, you know, there is life. Like we could, uh, I mean, really, if you think of the camps, there are no, no jobs, no opportunities. You can't even build anything. If you build a business, it won't succeed. So, yeah, so I was hoping that somehow... I will take my family and go to Western Sahara. It's very beautiful. We have the beach. It's it's a beautiful country. Yes, so that was my hope that I can go back with my country. We all live together in Western Sahara. No, and unfortunately it didn't happen till now. It didn't happen. What information did you have of what was going on in the occupied territories? What communications were there? You said some of your family stayed behind. How did you contact them? Or how did your, your mother or father contact? So unfortunately, until 1999, there was no communication. It's totally blocked. The border is blocked. We cannot cross. They cannot cross. And that time, we didn't have internet or anything. So I remember my father, he didn't have any information about his mom or his sister. In 1999, they started doing, the UN started to organize census to count the Sahrawis who can vote for referendum. So at that time, they were able to bring some CDs, some recordings from families to the, no, the rest of the family. So my father got a chance to hear about his mom. Yeah, he also sent, I remember we sat down and then we recorded. He got he introduced all of us to his mother. Yeah, so um, that's at that time. So there was really no communication, absolutely nothing, no communication at all. My father was... Um, Lucky because he had some brothers. There are lots of Sahrawis who came here by themselves, who came to the camps by themselves. The whole family stayed back. And they lived knowing nothing about their families. There were family reunions. Were any of your family involved in that, going back and meeting with their members in the occupied territories? Yes, yeah, so the UN organised the, the meetings, Sahrawis, so they can see each other, according to my information, it's, uh, it has to be the direct family. My grandmother passed away before that. My father put his name down, but unfortunately she, she passed away. So they gave opportunity to people who have direct, like, for example, um, if you have your mother, your brother, your, your son. But I know a lot of Sahrawis. I know some neighbors who went there. They got to meet their, the rest of their families. And some Sahrawis also came to the camps. Yeah, I have some some relatives who came from the occupied territories to the camps. And what did they learn about life in the occupied territories? So they told us that um, it's very interesting. When you, when you are in your country, but you actually you don't feel that you are in your country because uh, Sahrawi cities are filled of Moroccan settlers. There are Moroccan flags everywhere. So that, like, you know the land is your land. But at the same time, it's controlled by another country. 
Yeah, so they feel like us. They feel strangers. What about the people who came to the camps? Were you there when any of the people from the occupied territories came? And I wasn't there, but my mother and my sisters were there because we had some relatives who, who came from the the occupied territories. They just couldn't believe how we survived in this desert. So now actually they think that uh, our lives is harder than their lives, them being controlled by Morocco and uh, being, you know, like abused and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's the feeling. That's, you know, oh, how did you survive in this desert? How did you make it until now? And that now in the refugee camps there are lots of schools. There is like a little bit of kind of life. So they still think that, so how did we manage to do, to do it? A lot of NGOs come in, as well as the United Nations, is that correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. there are a lot of um, organisations who come, a lot of uh, humanitarian workers who come to the camps. I remember they even visit us at, uh, at my school, they would uh, educate us about health, you know, health and um, hygiene. And bring in supplies. Yeah, yeah, they always, yeah, they definitely, they always brought supplies and information too, you know, to educate the Sahrawis. You went to university? I did her uh, secondary school and high school in Algeria. So when you think of it, it's, it's in the same country, but you are actually, let's say you are spending the whole year in Tasmania and coming back to your family in Melbourne for summer. So you are still in the same country, but still you cannot go and see your family. Yeah, so I did until, um, until high school. The year before I finished high school, I, I went to Costa Rica. Why? I was studying, and there was this uh, organization it's called United World Colleges. They give scholarships to people from different backgrounds, you know, being refugees or basically diverse economical and social backgrounds. So, yeah, so they came to the camps. They did an exam. I passed the exam, and I was given a scholarship to go and do study high school in Costa Rica. And who were some of the other children that were there with you? There were lots of other students. They didn't come from my school, but I knew them. I knew some of them. So we all sat for the same exam. I think there were like four girls and one boy. We were six. Yeah. What did you hope to do? I wanted to study. At that time, I was very interested in political science. So I wanted to study political science or international law. And, of course, be able to go back to my country. And your parents were quite happy with you going yeah, to they, do that? Yeah, they were happy, especially my father was very happy. My mother was a little bit hesitant because it's very far. But my father was, he was very supportive. Have yeah. any of your siblings done the same thing as you or you're the only one? No, I'm the only one. Where are they all now? Oh, they are all in, in Algeria, in the camps. Younger than you? I have one sister older than me, she's married, and the rest are younger than me. I have some aunties who I call my sisters because we have the same age. They are also in the camps. When did you come to Australia? I came in 2013. Was that difficult to get here? The visa was difficult, definitely, because uh, I told them I come from a refugee background, so that's, uh, you know, that's like a big thing that, you know, you you come from a refugee camp. You are a refugee, so definitely will come here to, you know, stay illegally. But actually, I was married, and I came here on spouse visa. That made it easier. What did you hope to do here? Definitely, I wanted to continue my studies in university. 
Yeah, and live. It's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful country. Have you been back to the camps at all? No, unfortunately not. Since I came here, my Algerian passport expired. We have the Sahrawi passport, but nobody recognized the Sahrawi passport. And uh, so I had to actually have to wait for the Australian citizenship to be able to go back. Is that slow? Oh, it's very slow. It's very slow. <laughs> I have been here for five years and still waiting. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, after my passport expired, my Algerian passport expired, Algeria introduced the biometric passports. I can't do it from here. And that's one of the reasons is because I am Sahrawi. I am not Algerian. I don't have the national card, national ID. So I'm stuck with that here. You have a little boy who's three, four? Yes, I have a little boy. He just turned four. What do you mm. tell him about your family? Because he's never seen his family, has he? No, no. He only sees them on the internet, WhatsApp or, you know, via chat. So, yeah, I told him, yeah, we, were live, we were living in the desert. We have a lot of animals. We don't have houses like these houses. Yes, he doesn't really understand much. I tried to speak to him in Arabic and Hassaniya, but he would respond in English. Yes, yeah, so he has, he knows a little bit, you know, that all oh, we live in the desert, but he, does, but he doesn't really quite understand the concept of us being refugees and displaced. He's a happy little boy. He is, he's happy, yeah, he's very happy, yeah. Where do you see your future now? Where do I see my future? That's a really good question because... Um, once you get your citizenship. Oh, yeah, I will go. I will go back. I will go and see my family, definitely. I will go and visit my family. So I have my son here. So I am now like, I have my family who lives in a refugee camp. I want to go back. I want to go back and work, even if it's volunteering. Hopefully I will do that. At the same time, I have my son who, who would have a better future here, better health, health education, and he's Australian citizen, my son. So he would have a better education, better, better health, basically better life here, as opposed to growing up in a refugee camp. But I personally, um, I hope that in summer holidays, I would be able to take my son, we go to the camps, teach English, volunteer, do something for my people. Are there many Western Saharis in Australia? No, no, not so many. I think in Melbourne is only me and my son. We have uh, the Sahrawi representative, Kamal Fadil, in Sydney, and there are a couple of families in Sydney as well. And how much mm. contact do you have with your family back home? Oh, I talk to them daily, yes. And how are they getting on? Uh, they are good. Very interesting because uh, a lot of Sahrawis, they go to Spain, you know, to find work and to, you know, just have a better life. But my father, no, my father said that um, he will stay in the camps until he goes until he go, yeah, until he go back to Western Sahara. My mom is working. She's a nurse. Uh, she's, they're happy. It's very simple life. It's harsh, but you have the f whole family together. They believe that one day we will go back to Western Sahara. And I hope so, really. I hope that one day I will wake up and uh, I will be able to go back to my country and live there. And you're now a member of the Australian Western Sahara Association? Yes. And what does that mean for you to know that there's an association here? Very, very lovely members. So I feel that they are like Sahrawis, some sort. They know a lot about Western Sahara. Yeah, so I think they are like my support here, since I am the only Sahrawi here. And they have been really amazing to me and to my son. Very good. <laughs> Great, thank you.
And that was Gabby, the only Western Saharan in Melbourne, apart, of course, from her little boy, who's also Australian. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4. Dunbar Law will be with you in about one minute's time, so I'll say goodbye and next week. Bye for now.